Hey folks, this is Trust in the Process podcast. My name is Travis Fritz. I'm a brewer and owner at Old Nation Brewing Company in Michigan. Uh, I am delighted and uh, frankly astonished to have uh, Mr. Mitch Steele on the podcast today. Mitch has a long history in American craft brewing and frankly, in American brewing just in general. Um, if you don't know, Mitch wrote the literal book on IPA, um, which I have certainly read and many, many other professional brewers uh, use weekly, if not daily. Uh, Mitch also has a phenomenally interesting story in uh, craft beer. And uh, we, I think we just spent about five minutes talking about uh, cheesy rare guitars too. So. <laughs> <laughs> a broad palette of interests and skill in Mr. Mitch Steele. Um, and I'm so happy you could come on with us today. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, you're welcome. It's uh, thanks for asking me. It's good to be here. Of course, of course. Um, so the, the 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 sort of genesis of you as a brewer is at UC Davis. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was um, I went to UC Davis, and uh, my very first quarter there, I was kind of like a biology pre vet major, something That's like good. that. I hadn't really quite figured it out. And I got I got kicked out of a, a couple of classes because, you know, I was a freshman and didn't have any status and, and the classes filled up. And I was scrambling to try and find a couple of classes to take to fill out my schedule. And the um, the RA in the dorm said, look, if, if you come to UC Davis and you don't take intro to winemaking, you're an idiot. Take that class. And so I, I signed up for it. And it was it, absolutely marvelous. And, it, you know, and I'm in this class going, holy crap. This is like everything I love to think about doing. You know, it's science, it's art, it's you know, it's agriculture. It's it's just it really kind of uh, struck a nerve with me, and and so I started moving myself into a fermentation science major, uh, which was the major at UC Davis, which they no longer have that major, but it's uh, like an applied biochemistry, food science um little bit of everything um and you know as i started moving in that direction i learned that we had a, a brewing program at uc davis and i'm like oh man because i i love my beer and i was like that that's the ticket you know and and so i started gravitating towards uh towards brewing science and uh, took classes from dr michael lewis and uh, really enjoyed that part of it so um at that time, uh, and and not to date you unfairly, but at that time, craft beer was not, there wasn't a craft beer as such. There were what we now call craft beers in the market, uh, but there wasn't this kind of, uh, it was brewing, right? Uh, there was yeah. beer brewing and that was that. You yeah. On, yeah. And most of the students that, that went through the brewing program at UC Davis ended up at Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser-Busch yes. was a big sponsor of that. Um, Michael Lewis had a great relationship with Sierra Nevada, which was a couple of years old at the time. Uh, there was another craft brewery in um, Sacramento called River City, I believe. Okay. Uh, and that was about it, you know. Right. And um, and and you know, Anchor was close by in San Francisco, but I I don't know how much I don't recall UC Davis working with Anchor much at all. But um, you know it. it yeah, craft really hadn't taken off yet. And when I when I graduated, um, there were, you know, it was a, the middle of a, a Reagan recession period, and there were no jobs. 
in the brewing industry. And I ended up getting a job in the wine business because I studied winemaking too. And, and that was fun for a while, but I think I knew all along I wanted to get back into brewing beer. Right. Right. And so presently, I guess in, if I'm not wrong, 1988, you started at Anheuser-Busch. Is that right? No, that's when I started at a brew pub in, in Hollister, California. So that was, that was called San Andreas. And, and I was working, um, I was working for a winery called Almaden, which at the time was like the number two winery in the country, but they had these satellite wineries in Hollister, California, which is about 45 miles inland from Monterey and about 45 miles south of San Jose. So it's okay. kind of in central coast farm country. Beautiful, beautiful Dude. area. Yeah. And up in the mountains south of Hollister, Almaden had a, a red wine winery and a white wine winery, and they were doing some really nice things there. And then they had a plant in the Central Valley that was doing bulk wine, which was the bulk of their business. But they were really making an effort to get into some nice wines. And, and I worked there and I was working there in 1988. And by that time, Almaden had been sold to a company called Hubline. Um, uh, and Hubline was mostly a spirits company, but they also owned a bunch of wine brands, but they were, they were much more focused on bulk brands than Almaden was. And, you know, it just kind of, kind of, uh, yeah, I, I lost interest, right? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> yeah. so I'm I'm starting to think about what I want to do, and I knew that wasn't it. And I saw an ad in the local Hollister, not an ad, an article in the local Hollister newspaper uh, about a guy who was starting a brew pub on Main Street in Hollister, and his name was Bill Millar. And I was like, oh crap, you know, this is this is awesome. And so I pulled out a phone book, if you remember what those were. Of course, yes. <laughs> I looked up Bill Millar's number and I called him and I said, hey, you know, I'm a I'm a brewing science guy from UC Davis and I'm working at a local winery here and I'd love to see what you're doing because, you know, there's part of me that wanted to start a brewery. And I go in and I meet him in the site and he tells me everything that's happening and we talk for like three hours. And um, at the end of our discussion, he's like, look, I don't have a brewer. Do you want the job? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. And then, <clears throat> so this is a long story, but no, please. He, he, was, he was working in a, a tomato cannery in town and Hollister had a lot of tomato canneries and, and they were really crazy busy in the fall. Makes sense. And when uh, people at his company found out that he was starting this brewery, they fired him. And okay. so, so Bill had to go full time into the brewery, which meant that there wasn't a spot for me because I mean, we were doing like 500, 700 barrels a year, Right. Um, but I still worked with him and I still brewed for him. And I came up with all the recipes and I brewed the first few batches of beers. And then I'd come in on Saturdays and brew a batch of beer for him. And, nice. and, and so I was moonlighting there while I was still doing the winery work. And, and so that's how I got my start. And, and Bill, had kind of a neat idea at the time. He he wanted to do sessionable beers. He wanted to do less everything less than five percent. He wanted people to come in and have it be like a pub and and have people drink uh, you know multiple glasses of beer and just hang out. And um, you know that worked. Uh, <laughs> you know, but you know as a consequence, he never let me brew an IPA. Sure. Okay. You okay. know, uh, he just wasn't interested, you know, and I was like, just discovering IPAs at that time. And I'm like, Bill, we got to do an IPA, <laughs> you know, Rubicon and Triple Rock. They're all killing it with these great IPAs. 
And he's like, ah, it's 7% alcohol, 6.5% alcohol, no way. And <laughs> so we never did, you know, well, but. <laughs> but, but I mean, see, this is, these are, these are the kinds of questions that I want to ask you. So if you want to move on, please let me know. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But so, uh, so, so it's fair to say then 1988 is when your craft beer career starts. Yes. Um, for me, it was 2001. So that's about a 13 year difference and a lot changed in that gap. I, yeah, it sure did. Um, <laughs> that, 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 uh, that the, the generation of brewers, if not in a different actual generation before me kind of did. Um, so when I, I know when I walked into recipe writing and, and sort of brewery operations and, you know, even in brew pubs and production breweries, there was sort of the standard that that, that I brought back from um, the, the VLB in Berlin, um, coupled with this decade or so long, um, I guess in earnest, decade or so long uh, craft beer movement here in the U.S., which was still kind of nascent at the time. So um, I guess my question now, that's a rambling way to ask a question that has almost nothing to do with that, what I said. But um, because I have that perspective and because you have the, the perspective that, that you do, I guess my question is, you said you wrote the recipes for, for this brewery. What were you referencing, right? What, what do you feel, and this is a broader question that I guess we can get into, but it, it felt to me even 20 years ago that when you sat down to write a recipe, it was a little more representative of what it was that you wanted to do because everything was still kind of new right yeah um and that felt to me a little bit more freeing and there was less pressure to kind of do something different just to get folks attention that you had a brewery was almost enough uh, yes. if you were a good brewer to get people's attention yes so can you tell me a little bit about your thought process at that time with regard to, to coming up with beers and road testing them and and figuring all that out because i feel like you sure. guys were working with way less of a net than, than we were 15 years later. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, back back in the in the mid 80s when the brew pubs started happening, and I, I consider us part of the second wave of Bay Area brew pubs in 1988. That's when um, Gordon Beerish opened up and Tide House and some of the other, uh, you know, long-term um, brewery companies, Marin Brewing, places sure. like that. Sure. Um, and really what everybody was doing at that time was just brewing English ales, you right. know, and you'd have a pale and you'd have an amber and you'd have a dark. And <laughs> and so that's kind of what we did. Uh, I had Charlie Papazian's book and I had a whole bunch of, of home brewing books from uh, uh, from a guy named Dave Lyme, who was English okay. and wrote home brewing books. And that's pretty much what you could find in, in uh, shops that sold home brewing equipment at the time. And so I was homebrewing, you know, even even before I connected with Bill, I was homebrewing on a somewhat, you know, infrequent but regular basis. And then, um, you know, when I started talking with Bill, I, I ramped it up quite a bit and I was brewing a lot of beers. And, and you know, I kind of I, I put together the beers <clears throat> primarily from a homebrew standpoint first. And, you know, I did five gallon batches and bottled them up and you know, took him over to Bill and we taste the beers. And he said, yeah, this is this is kind of what I'm looking for. These beers are good. And, um, you know, and then it, it was interesting because, you know, when we brewed the first batch of beer that was supposed to be seismic ale, 
uh, which was we were hoping was going to be the kind of the flagship beer of the company. And it was an amber ale and it came out way too dark. And, uh, you know, I just I just miscalculated on the crystal malts and uh, but it was wonderful. It was a great beer. So we ended up calling it something else and then brewing the next day, brewing a seismic ale and, and getting it right. I love when that happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that beer, I, the name of the beer was Kit Fox Amber and he, he named it after uh, um, an endangered fox in, in the central California region. And um, it became one of our mainstays you know yeah. <laughs> which is which is kind of cool yeah but we were you know we were like everybody else we were doing all ales we had a 14 barrel system we had uh 14 barrel fermenters we had grundy tanks for bright tanks oh, and and bill was had this coca-cola soda carbonator thing that we were running we would circulate the beer through the uh through the grundy through this carbonator to carbonate it up and that works? It, it worked, you know, and, and then we just went straight through from the coal box through a wall into the taps. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was very a very basic system. We didn't we had um, we didn't have hot liquor and cold liquor tanks. We had a water tank. We had to heat our brewing water in the kettle and transfer it over. Yep. And um, and then when we were chilling, we brought water back um into that tank and in you know it's it, it was fun i mean it was just yeah. you know i was on my knees in that brewery just hooking up hoses and <laughs> you know starting pumps and you know we, we would mash in we'd we'd mill out in the alley in the back into into big uh uh big bins uh trash bins basically and we'd drag them in and then you know two of us would lift them up onto a, a rolling ladder and then dump them in yep. and be and then stir and then do the yeah. next one and yeah. yeah i mean it was it was like it, it was cool stuff you know i i was having the time of my life <laughs> <laughs> there was still there was still a lot of that i mean i certainly did not miss the opportunity to experience breweries where you kind of had a shoestring and a roll of duct tape and you <laughs> Particularly, you know, still at the time when I started, there were breweries even here in Michigan that were dedicated at that time to making uh, English ales and open fermentation and Ringwood yeast yep. and um, all of that stuff. And I got the opportunity to work there. Uh, and it is interesting, particularly coming from somebody like me who didn't really know anything about production brewing until I went to the VLB. And then my perspective yeah. was completely the German breweries at which I apprenticed. Right. Yeah. So clean tiles, copper, everything yep. in its place and a place for everything and a plan and one beer, maybe two that they're making. Um, very buttoned up, very organized. Um, you know, you know, in, in San Andreas, we were the first ones. We had a lot of fruit orchards in the area. Yeah. yeah. And we were the first ones that I know of that made an apricot beer. Really? And yeah. Yeah, this was before Pyramid or anybody else, and and we would bring in bins of fruit and spend a day cutting them in half and pitting them, and then we'd throw them into a fermenter. And, you know, we knew about Lambic beers, but sure. we didn't really know them, you know, and we're like, hey. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got cherries, we've got apricots. And so we were just using, you know, making kind of a standard ale and then right. dumping this fruit in there. And we came out with it every year. It was, right. you know, so we were doing a, a few things that were a little bit different um, for the time. 
which I thought was pretty cool. I, you know, it was also a pain in the ass. At <laughs> right, the approach, well, right. But um, <laughs> it's another step, another problem. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was it was challenging and fun and and exciting. You know, those were exciting times in craft beer. And I remember having a lot of conversations with Grant Johnston. And Grant Johnston was uh, kind of a legacy craft brewer in the Bay Area, and he was the brewmaster at Marin Brewing Company very early on and they were having a lot of success with a blueberry or a raspberry beer or something like that and so he'd always grab me at beer festivals and just say let's talk about fruit beer you know (laughs) it's like and i don't think he liked brewing them but you know and it's like it's a necessary evil kind of thing but uh, yeah it was those were interesting times did you were you the kind of brewer that was hanging out a little bit at least in the pub and kind of checking out how people were receiving the beer? oh absolutely i actually i tended bar two nights a week in the pub for a while beautiful yeah i you know i just to me i just liked being there you know and and there wasn't a heck of a lot else in hollister at the time (laughs) uh you know there were some dive bars and things like that but um you know this was the only place in town where i could get beer that i really liked Fantastic. Well, that's that's that says something about <laughs> yeah. a lot, I suppose. Um, so now you have this is your first brewing job. It's a little bit kind of, you know, stone knives and bear skins. Um, and somehow 14 years later or more, you end up um, at, at relatively high up in the Anheuser-Busch structure, um, which is a completely different experience, I imagine. And I, I don't know if that's something you can or, or wish to talk about, but maybe sure. even just the contrast between those two. Those oh, two. It, it was huge. It was, yeah. you know, um, so I was, I was still working at the winery and I was getting really tired of that. And I knew I needed to make a change. And, you know, four years into my time at San Andreas, I realized that Bill was never going to have a spot for me where I could make an actual living at it. Right. And so I started sending out some resumes and, and, and also I'd spent almost my whole life in California and I wanted to explore the world, the world a little yeah, bit sure. and, and get out and see different parts of the country. I, you know, I'd been able to take trips to Oregon and the Florida and places like that, you know, as a young adult. And I'm like, Oh, there's a lot out here that, you know, so I, I bottom line, I sent a few resumes out to breweries that I thought, um, I thought would be a good fit for me. Um, you know, from a living standpoint and also from a, a learning the brewing business standpoint. And sure. um, I ended up getting hired by Anheuser-Busch in Fort Collins in uh, in the summer of 1992. And so I packed up my car and my dog and we moved out to Colorado. And, you know, it was quite an adventure. And, you know, I mean, so the biggest thing you walk into a brewery like that and they've got, you know, stainless tanks everywhere they've got tile floors it's it's immaculate um you got a lot of people uh they have food safety requirements you know and you, you got to wear a hat you got to wear safety glasses you got to wear hearing protection all this stuff yep. that you know it's just wasn't part of part of the gig you know at san andreas definitely and not even at the winery and you know it was uh, it, it was a whole new world for me you know and you know, a lot of Anheuser-Busch, I th- the one thing that really sticks with me is my very first day, I was, I, they put me with one of the supervisors, and I was a shift supervisor when I started, and I'm shadowing him, and he said, yeah, now we've got to foss this beer to this tank, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, 
what does FOSS mean? I've never heard right. that, right? Because <laughs> Mike, Michael Lewis was was from the UK, right? He talked <laughs> he talked in British brewing trials and whatnot. Yeah, and 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 so all these all these German lager terms. I had to learn, you know, kind of on the fly there, which, which was kind of cool. I didn't know what croisoning was. I didn't know, you know, uh, I didn't want to know what Kieselger was or, you know, (laughs) but Anheuser Bush called all their filters K filters. And, and I came to learn that that was Kieselger, which is diatomaceous earth. Right. And, and, and so there was a, a pretty steep learning curve, but, on the other hand, I knew how to run a production operation and I knew right. how to manage people and uh, I knew how to work with unions because uh, the winery was union. And, okay. uh, you know, and and so walking into Anheuser-Busch, there was a lot to learn, but there was a lot I stepped into pretty quickly. And um, I I was a shift supervisor there for three years and the, and the rotating shift thing was brutal. Uh, we yes. rotated every 28 days. But I loved Fort Collins. I loved the community. That was right when Odell's and New Belgium were starting yes. up in Fort Collins. And so yes. their beer was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the beer community there was was radically different than where I came from. And Fort Collins, Colorado is just a, a beautiful place. I mean, the summers, it's it's, it's God's country, you know. It totally is. Like, <laughs> range right out there. And all yeah, that. exactly. So I could have stayed there forever. And and. Um, you know, Anheuser-Busch had a four-week brewing school that they put on every year, and they'd send a couple of people from each brewery to go through that class. And it was a big deal. It was kind of a, you know, if you did well in that class, then then the upper up, ups in, in AB management, brewing management, took a look at you for promotion okay. opportunities and stuff. Okay. And so I went to this, and, you know, I'm, you know, like everybody walking into a four-week brewing class being taught by all these industry experts you know that have been been around for decades you're scared shitless right and and, and i'm like i gotta do well i gotta do well and and so you know i took it pretty seriously i mean i you know it was my first time ever in st louis and and you know i got to learn that city a little bit but I ended up finishing first in the class <laughs> and I was, I was stunned, right? Because there were a lot of really good people, really sharp people in that class. And I'm like, holy crap. And the instructor, Tom Schmidt, uh, who did sensory for, he ran the sensory programs at Anheuser-Busch. So he was, a, he was a big deal and he was yeah. a super nice guy. Uh, he was from the Boston area. So he had a bit of that new England accent going and, um, I, he, he took a liking to me and he's the one that got me into like great American beer festival judging and things like that. And I really, really always appreciated that, that kind of support from him. But yeah, we, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I was on the plane home after they announced, you know, they basically what they did is they pulled up the top five, uh, grades, you know, uh, accomplishments in, in, right. in front of the whole group. And they had all these people from corporate brewing in, in this room, it was a luncheon and, <laughs> and then, you know, and they pulled up four people and I'm like, Oh, okay. I mean, you know, I think I did pretty well, but maybe I didn't do as well as that. And then, and then Tom goes, this guy didn't miss one question on all the tests. <laughs> and he called me up and I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, my roomie Jim Blazier, who was who was a engineering guy at Anheuser Busch in Fort Collins, um, we were flying back, and he goes, "Dude, 
you better pack your bags. You're going to St. Louis soon. And, <laughs> and it happened about two months later. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so th- this is something I, I don't know who or how many people are going to listen to this podcast, obviously, but um, something that I think I tend to talk about to just folks, kind of craft beer fans a lot um, and, and other brewers less now, but, you know, it used to be a pretty big topic was the, the perspective of craft beer drinkers and a lot of brewers that, you know, breweries like at least Anheuser-Busch or these more industrial breweries aren't taking beer as seriously as the craft brewers. And coming from that environment in Europe, myself, I have always thought that that's laughable. I mean, obviously, yeah. you may or may not enjoy the product they make, but I, I think the way that they make it is almost unparalleled with regard to attention to detail and um, a lot of the parts of the process that I think young brewers, particularly now and, and brewers from my generation should know and should be interested in the part of brewing sensory analysis that craft brewers, I think, focus on so much, uh, not in the way that Anheuser-Busch does it necessarily, but, you know, flavors and kind of picking out and, and judging and all that kind of stuff. You got a lot of that head start from a guy who worked at Anheuser-Busch who knew what he was talking about and taught you that. that yeah. Time, right. And, you know, Anheuser-Busch was huge on educating their team. I mean, yep. there was a, a yearly annual sensory class at every single brewery. So you learned how to taste. And then there was um, once a year they did a week long sensory training course for people and i got to go to that and then the and then the annual ones at the breweries where they did threshold testing and all that kind of stuff and you know you're you're absolutely right i mean the the passion that anheuser-busch brewing managers had for what they were doing was was unparalleled and you know these people were technical experts and you know they didn't know much about other types of beer that was probably the biggest the biggest negative i can say about these folks yeah but you know at anheuser-busch you had german trained brewmasters who had worked at breweries big breweries in germany and we had uh, um, a few folks that had worked at big breweries in the uk and they were on staff and just having those people and sitting at a table with those yes. people and tasting beers and throwing out your comments and right. getting getting validated, you know, by what you were saying. And I, I mean, it was an incredible experience and, and I learned so much. And I always, I always tell people, um, you know, Anheuser-Busch is where I learned how to run a brewery. Yes. You know, this is, this is where I learned how to look at critical control points in the brewing process, evaluate them, track them, ensure consistency and not just flavor consistency, but process consistency and, and, you know, malt analysis, how, why that's important and all that kind of stuff is stuff I learned at Anheuser-Busch. And I, I mean, the educational opportunities in that company were, were amazing. And, uh, I remember, um, you know, when I joined, I figured I'd give it five years because I really wanted to do craft. I said, I'm going to soak up as much as I can in five years and, and then start trying to find my way back into a craft brewery. And I stayed 14 years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it was up until the last year or so, it was an absolutely incredible experience. And then the last year things started happening that made me think, ah, you know, maybe this isn't, this isn't my, my, uh, um, forever career. Um, (laughs) I read dethroning the King. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what? (laughs) So I, you know, I read that book too, and about half of it took place. The first half of that book took place while I was there. Yep. 
And I'm reading it and I'm going, holy crap, whoever wrote this book had access to a lot of really very true, valid information. I mean, this is exactly how it was. It seemed like it. Yeah. <laughs> it was and, all very plausible. And, you know, the big thing I think that, that Anheuser-Busch missed on when, you know, when they were trying to get into 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 the craft beer or, you know, they call this specialty beer because they, they realized they could not pull themselves off as a craft brewery, right? Yeah. But um, they didn't pay attention, you know, right. to what was going on uh, with other breweries. And, you know, they didn't, it, it wasn't brewer fueled at all. It was, it right. was marketing fueled. So 100%. marketing people would get feedback from distributors and say, right. okay, we need something that tastes like Sierra Nevada pale ale, right. or, you, you know, you need to do something that tastes like Sam Adams. And, um, you know, when I, when I did get promoted, I was, I was put in charge of innovation, new product innovation on the brewing side. So I worked very closely with the marketing teams and, you know, when we came up with a beer that was really innovative, I, we really struggled getting them to buy into it. And there so, were several of those. <laughs> tell me a little bit about what that kind of a pitch meeting was like. If you so basically, you know, we did um, we had one slot in the pilot brewery every week to brew a batch of beer and they brewed 10 brews a week. So 10 percent of what they brewed was uh approximately was new product ideas that came from me and the people I was working with. Um, and I worked with typically one other person uh, in new products. So we were kind of partners and uh, divvied up things. And But we would send them beers based on what marketing was asking us to brew. And some of the ideas were bonkers, you know. And I remember Gerhard Kramer, who was the VP of brewing at the time, sat me down when I was expressing some frustration with him. He said, listen, he said, you're going to have to deal with marketing people. You, you nod your head, you say yes, and then you go do the right thing. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, that, that's an important life lesson there. But, you know, we, we came up with a beer, um, a rye beer with honey in it. And it was a, it was a hazy rye with German Hefeweizen and yeast, and, and we call it Honey Hefferogen. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and the marketing people were like, what the fuck? You know, yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that, nope. you know? We don't like the way it looks. We don't like the way that sounds. Just no. But, <laughs> um, and, and then another one, we had an IPA that we brewed that was, uh, I believe it was Columbus and Cascade hops in the dry hop. Uh, Columbus was a new hop at the time, and you know, it was 65 IBUs and 7% alcohol, and Nobody's it was absolutely this. marvelous, right? And, <laughs> and we took it to the Great American Beer Festival, and I'd been, I had, I really pushed to get Anheuser-Busch to be represented at the, at the Great American Beer Festival, to have a booth, to do it real, you absolutely. know, and not just have a, a distributor person pouring beer at a table, you know, in a corner. Yeah. And, and so we started making a big show at the, at the Great American Beer Festival. And this was probably year three, maybe year two, uh, that we, we did this. And we were pouring the IPA and we had this huge line, you know, and, and I was like, Guys, oh, this yeah. is amazing, you know, and, you know, and marketing people were there and salespeople were there. Everybody saw it and everybody saw the reaction to that beer. And, it, you know, and I remember Jim Cook coming in and, and tasting the beer and said, this is the best beer you guys have on the table. And and I was I walked away from that thing just beaming. Right. And and I got back. Of course. <laughs> I, so I got back to St. Louis and we sit in the meeting. I said, OK, guys, what are we going to do with the IPA? And they're like, 
yeah, we're probably not going to do anything with it. Yeah, you know, you can go fuck yourself with it if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what the hell? And I started pushing back pretty hard. And sure. then one of the marketing guys after the meeting pulled me aside and said, look, you understand what we're trying to do here, right? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, we're not trying to grow this category. And I'm like, well, that's what their perspective seemed like from the outside. Too. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, they wanted to compete because they had to, but they didn't want to grow it. They wanted right. everything to funnel back into growing Budweiser at, at the time. And, and that philosophy became more apparent in, during my time there and doing new products. And I think, I think that was a mistake. I think, um, you know, they, it wasn't very forward thinking. It was very reactive. And, yeah. You know, the fact that Anheuser-Busch had people that could make amazing beers, no matter what the style, was just lost on these folks. And and that opportunity was lost. And and I felt I was really discouraged by that. Right. And that's when I started going, oh, maybe this isn't the right place for me. Well, that makes sense. And honestly, the perspective that they had is, is easy to make sense of, too. I would sure. Say, right. Given their position at the time. Um, and what that threat really meant at the time, which was, I don't know, you know, it seems kind of crazy. Who, yeah. We'll see, I guess. Um, but from there, so so this is what, you know, I, I kind of want to maybe a good segue into, into talking about uh, more of your career and, and kind of journey. Uh, so working with, for example, uh, as a as a sort of uh, innovative brewer, the guy who mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, road testing everything and coming up with the ideas and translating what marketing is, is saying, if that's a fair way to describe it. That is a good way to describe it. Yes. And then having to kind of put it back to them and knowing what the thing is and having them maybe not get it um, is a lot. To me, it sounds a lot like working with distributors, particularly Anheuser-Busch distributors to this day, to be yes. honest. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think you should know, you know, folks who are going into a brewing career should know that's going to be a big part of your, your job. Um, yeah. So how then did you, so that then I think you move on to Stone after this, yes? Yeah, so I got, I got transferred in Anheuser-Busch, I got transferred out of corporate brewing when they stopped focusing on craft style beers and started making flavored products and things like that. And I told, I told the VP of brewing at the time, Doug Molman, I said, Doug, I don't, I'm not really interested in doing this. You know, I, I think at this point I'd rather make, make Budweiser. Sure. And so they moved me into the St. Louis brewery and I ran that brew house for a couple of years. And that was a monster, uh, you know, 60 brews mashing in a day kind of, kind of place. I mean, it was just crazy. Um, and I spent a couple of years there. And then I got promoted up to Merrimack, New Hampshire as assistant brewmaster for brew house and fermenting. And I love New Hampshire. Absolutely dug it. Um, uh, you know, I love the brewery. It was probably had the most, um, the best relationship with the union brewers of any of the breweries that I worked at. Uh, everybody was in it together, you know, and the team at Merrimack had been making a lot of the craft beers when I was doing that work. And so I was traveling up there a lot and they, they took a liking to me and, and decided to bring me up when they were building a new brew house up there. And I, I managed the, the commissioning of, of that new brew house and, and then stuck there for six years. And, you know, about at the end of that time, though, that's when um, I was starting to think about maybe doing something else. And Steve Wagner put an ad out on the Brewers Association forum saying that Stone was looking for a head brewer. And I was kind of like, hmm, 
this sounds interesting. And I'm like, <laughs> and my first question is, okay, what happened to Lee Chase? Right. Cause right. I knew, I knew Lee from tasting panels and everything. And I'm like, this is odd. I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on there. And, um, you know, I was kind of joking about it with my wife and she knew I was unhappy, you know, with the way things were going at AB at the time. And, and the next day she goes, so have you heard back from stone yet? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I said, I, you know, I, we, this was just talk. And she goes, no, you should apply. I mean, we, we've been to San Diego. We'd spent time in San Diego. We like San Diego. And, and she said, apply for the job. What's the worst that can happen? And I yeah. said, well, they could offer me the job and we leave this area, which we absolutely fell in love with. Yep. But, you know, yeah. and, also, and yeah. San Diego's not that bad. No. And, and, <laughs> and so that's what we ended up doing. And we ended yeah. up, I, you know, Steve interviewed me over the phone a couple of times and then he flew me out for a couple of days of interviews and um, ended up offering me the job and, um, and I ended up taking it obviously. And, and so we packed up everybody and moved to California. You know? <laughs> so, uh, how much beer was stone more or less? How much beer was stone making at that time when you started? So they were brewing at about a 35 to 40,000 barrel pace. They had just opened up a new, new, their new brewery in Escondido, mm -hmm. uh, moved out of the brewery in San Marcos that they started in. And then, and then lost Abbey came in and took that brewery over. And, um, they, they were about, Ah, four or five months in to run in that new brewery when I got there. And there was still a lot of commissioning work that needed to be done because they didn't have the staff to actually babysit that process and understand right. how, you know, it was an automated brewery and all this stuff, you know, and people didn't really understand it. So that was my focus. Probably my first six months was figuring all that out so that we could put together some training material for the brewing team. I uh, actually had the opportunity to work on a Crohn's bottling line uh, from Stones. It was bought, used, and is now here in Detroit uh, a couple of months ago. Really? Uh, yeah. So I wonder if that's uh, I wonder if that's one that you may have touched as well. I um, think so. Yeah, <laughs> um, so thirty-five. I, for some perspective, for folks that are listening, I think uh, you know, for for maybe home brewers or smaller brewers, um, thirty-five to forty thousand barrels is a respectable clip even now i think for for just mm -hmm. about any brewery um but at that time and, and we're talking now about sort of the early 2000s or late this 90s. was 2006 2006 yeah so even at that time that was pretty big for a craft brewery um there 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 wasn't kind of regional hegemony like there is uh now which is well deserved and earned and all that um but you took them much much, much farther than 35, 40,000 barrels. Or that is to say you were there when that happened and played a role in it. Yeah, we were in constant expansion mode my 10 years at Stone. Uh, we were pushing 400,000 barrels when I left. Uh, we had just opened up the Richmond Brewery. We had just opened up the Berlin Brewery. Um, yeah, it was an amazing period in craft beer. And, and we weren't the only ones that were growing frantically like that. You right. know, it was it was nuts. <laughs> um, you know, and it was, it was interesting because, you know, when I got to stone, they had their core brands and then they had, I think five special releases every year, you know, the Beautiful. Imperial, the Imperial stout, the barley wine, they did a vertical epic every year, an anniversary beer every year and double bastard. Right. Hey, and, 
And so, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and it's like, okay, we got to come up with two new beer recipes every year. No problem. Cool. And, <laughs> and you know, because everything else was in, and, and, you know, I, I tell you, Steve Wagner, I love that man. He was the best boss I ever had. And I walked in that door and he gave me so much creative freedom because I didn't expect that. Right. You know, well, and that and, hadn't really been part of your experience at all up until then. Or I well, mean, a little but not a, a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was, you know, and I and, and Greg Cook and, and my interview with Greg Cook, which went on for two days, is a totally different story. And it's probably too long to get into here. But imagine. it was fascinating. Um, <laughs> but one of the questions he asked me is what's a deal breaker for you coming here? And I told him, I said, a lack of creative input. That's, that's going to, that's not going to be, that's not going to work for me. And he's like, well, you know, we do it as a team effort here, but you're certainly going to be part of the process. And I said, that's good enough for me, yeah, you know, and, should be uh, but you know, Steve was like one of the first things he did after I got myself set up and established, um, he came to me about levitation ale, which was our low alcohol ale. And, and it was a low alcohol amber beer session beer. And it was originally formulated to be like a baby brother to arrogant bastard ale. Yeah, sure. And Steve just said, I've never liked this beer. You want to take a crack at doing something with it. <laughs> yep. And so we changed up the recipe a little bit. We kept it in the same camp, but we added a small dry hop to it and we dried it out a little bit. And, um, we ended up winning a gold medal that year at the great American beer festival for it, which, nice. which was awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You know, so it, it's like, okay, that worked. And, and, you know, over time, I think Greg started trusting me more and Steve always exhibited a lot of trust in me, but, you know, it, and Steve was like with old guardian, which was an established beer. He goes, Hey, look, if you want to change the recipe, go ahead. And I didn't, I, you know, no. I'm like, I love this beer. And the only thing I ever did was switch up the hops a little bit and uh, switch up the malts, you know, sure. but, you know, sometimes I'd use crisp malt in it or I'd use Simpsons malt in it or, you know, oh. sometimes we used American malts in it and, sure. you know, that kind of thing. But, um, I, you know, I didn't want to mess with those beers. You know, they no. were great. And yes. I remember Steve telling me with Old Guardian barley wine, which I love, and it was probably one of the lightest barley wines out there. It was really golden in which color. Might, might be why he loved it. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and Steve was like, look, I didn't want to muck it up with a whole bunch of malts. I wanted Thank to you. let the yeast character really shine through in this beer. And I'm yes. like, well, okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to go away from that. You know, no. that's, you know, but. No. Um, Maris Otter, a little bit of Fuggle, go for about 22 OG. Yeah, you pretty much, pretty <laughs> much, yeah. So um, it was it was wonderful. And and those first five, six years at Stone were amazing because we were just seeing things that, you know, nobody would ever thought we would have seen, right? You know, yep. with, with the growth and everything. And we had a great team. Everybody at Stone was so passionate about what we were doing. And they still are, you know, they're still yes. a really great, great company and really great people. Um, but it was, man, it, it, and it got to be nuts, right? You know, year, year nine and 10, when I was traveling to Berlin once a month and traveling to Virginia once oh. a month. And, you know, I will tell you this, I will tell you this <laughs> not to be controversial at all, but my, my buddies who still live and work in Berlin, they did, they, man, they hated that stone was there. <laughs> they hated it. And it wasn't that stone was there. The only problem was dropping the stone. I heard about this so many times. 
Yeah. I, I'm sure you didn't have any anything to do with no. this, uh, but dropping the stone on all the German beers, and that was kind of, you just lost, it doesn't matter, not a big demographic, but you just lost all the German brewers, right? It's exactly right. And, and <laughs> you know, we were, I was sitting with a group of, of um, Team Stone in a room, and we were watching Greg's press conference on this. We were all in Escondido. And he came out with, with a forklift with a big boulder on it and then dropped it onto this pallet of beer. And, and everybody in the room was like, oh, oh, what did you just do? <laughs> and, and um, you know, honestly, I think, you know, Greg thought that he could translate Stone's success in California and why it was successful to Germany. Yeah. And none of us were that confident about that, you know, and, and um, well, and as I it think, turns out. In principle, he's ahead of his time. There's a lot of that stuff happening yeah. in, in Berlin now. Yeah. <laughs> and all over Germany. Um, I, I think that it was uh, Germans are just as people very different than Californians, I think. And, maybe. And, and, and that was the piece that was missing from the equation, right? right. And, and, and then the other piece with Stone Berlin was it was five, six miles away from town center, Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, right. And and you couldn't get there by the public transportation. You you could, but you had right. to walk about a half hour after you got off the last train stop. Right. And if the weather sucked, you were miserable. Right. Um, and you know, I I think that's kind of a European thing where people aren't really willing to travel that far to go have a nice no. meal or a good beer when there's plenty of options very close by. That's right. And, you know, Escondido in California, people had to travel to. It was a destination spot and it was successful being one. Right. But that didn't didn't translate to Berlin. And, yeah. and you know, Escondido, you're in a highway culture anyway. Right. So yeah. whatever you get on, you get off. It's an extra 10 minutes. Who cares? But absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having to switch from, you know, the S-Bahn to the street line to a bus and then having to walk is something that Berliners, I know, frown upon <laughs> doing generally. I didn't um, want to do it. <laughs> right. But, but I do think that that really did play a role that just the opening of that brew pub, whether it's coincidence or whether it really was influential, that's when Germans started going, okay, well, what is this shit? Right. Yeah. That the Americans are making. And, and I believe in probably almost exactly those words. Right. What is this shit? Yeah. Why does it have to be this loud? Right. Yeah. Why, why does it have to yeah. be like this? It's <laughs> a great way to put it. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, I, I loved going to Berlin. I hated the travel part of it, but I, I love right. the city. And, and there were some really cool brewers that we got to know yes. um, when I was there. And, and I always stayed, um, uh, I can't remember the the area of the town. It was always, you know, kind of in the central Mitte. Yeah, Mitte. Uh, I always I always stayed there, and I had this walking path that I did to go to a, a craft beer bar, um, and then to oh man, I wish I could remember the names of these places. Yeah. But we were I always stayed right by Herman, the Belgian beer bar there. Absolutely, if, yes, yeah. Yes. So yeah. I, you know, my path was to go to this place, kind of kind of uh oh geez directionally it was east of herman i walked right past herman i go to this place have have some american craft beer uh go to the salt lick i think was the name of the the restaurant or salt and bone or something like that it was <laughs> nice, nice. A, a great restaurant that had a lot of craft beers and they would pour you know pilsner urquell out of a cask and all this wonderful Beautiful. stuff and Beautiful. then i make my way back and go to go to herman which would have been opened by that time and, right. and <laughs> I, you know i mean i had this route that i did every trip i was there it was absolutely marvelous you yeah. know and <laughs> maybe a, maybe a dinner something yeah like that 
Yeah. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now we are uh, now we're into a new era for you. Mm -hmm. um, and you are in the American South. Uh, yes. <laughs> and that I, before we start talking about new realm and, and all the interesting stuff you're doing there. Now we're now we've talked about, you know, California, obviously, a few times and for a long time. The Midwest in St. Louis for some time. Uh, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. uh, all very different regions of the country. Yep. Maybe the only one left is the South. Um, yes. <laughs> and so now here you are. Why? I mean, it's great, right? And Atlanta is a fantastic city that deserves way more recognition than it gets. Yeah. And I'm not asking why are you crazy and in the South, but how did you end up there? And what is it like? How is it different? So first off, it's gorgeous, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And, you know, Kathleen, my wife and I had been talking about trying to get out of California because California was so expensive. The traffic was so bad. Um, and, and we just kind of got tired of that. And um, but I wasn't looking to leave Stone. I believe right. me, I was still very happy at Stone. And uh, Carrie Falcone, our CEO, and Bob Powers, who's uh, our chief marketing and sales officer, reached out to me and started talking to me about, about this brewery concept they were trying to do in the Southeast. And both those guys, you know, they spent time in St. Louis. They were both XAB guys, but they were also um, had spent a lot of time in the Carolinas and in Georgia and knew the area really well. And originally they were talking to me about uh, about headquartering the company in Asheville, North Carolina. And my, I have family from Asheville, uh, you know, way back in the, you know, decades ago, century ago. Uh, but my dad was born there and, and I got to go to Asheville a few times when I was with Stone and absolutely fell in love with that city. It's great. And, and so I'm like, wow, I could, I could start this brand new place. We've got good financial backing. We're going to be in Asheville. This just all sounds absolutely incredible. And I, you know, initially when they talked to me, I said, no, I, my daughter was a sophomore in high school in Temecula, oh. California. I wasn't going to move her. And, you know, then they flew out and, and they flew out and they flew out with the investors and they talked to me some more. And I said, look, I said, my daughter's got three more years of high school to go. I'm, I'm not going to move her. She's doing wonderful. And uh, I'm not going to do that to her. And, they came back and said, you know what? We'll pay for you to commute until your daughter graduates. Holy crap. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, now, now I'm going to start thinking about this. Right. Sure. And um, so I, you know, I ended up taking the job obviously, and I commuted for three years, which was absolutely brutal. No um, joke. But um, uh you know, and, and, and the day before I started, so Carrie and Bob were continuing to work. And I, I gave like four months notice at Stone because I wanted to see the Berlin project done. I wanted to see Richmond done. I didn't want to leave Stone in the lurch. And I wanted to give them plenty of transition time because they'd been really good to me. And, you know, and Steve was disappointed and Greg was disappointed, but they understand, understood why I was doing this, why I wanted to do this. Um, and, and we're still on very good terms and, and that means a lot to me, Yes. but, um, you know, the day before I started, it, we had tried to get a building in Asheville and could, didn't get it. The deal yeah. didn't work out. And 
So Carrie and Bob had been looking in Charlotte, North Carolina and Raleigh and, and Atlanta, which is where Carrie's from. <clears throat> and um, Carrie called me up the day before I started and said, I found our building. And I'm like, oh, cool. Where is it? And he goes, Atlanta. And I said, Atlanta, what? <laughs> and, and I I had never spent much time in Atlanta, right? You know, right. I I traveled through there when I was with AB to go to their Cartersville Brewery, which is about an hour north of the city. Yeah, but um, different. <laughs> yeah, a lot different, right? <laughs> yeah. And and there was a craft brewers conference in Atlanta in the mid-1990s, but I didn't really get out and about that much during that conference. But um, so day one, I got on a plane and flew to Atlanta and walked this site that Carrie was looking at. And I was like, okay, we could do some really cool stuff with this. Right. This is, this is a neat building. So yeah. <laughs> so we, that's how we started and we ended up in Atlanta. Um, and then I moved, I moved to Atlanta in May of 2019 permanently. Okay. okay. Um, and I absolutely love it. I, you know, we had a, a, an apartment that we stayed at uh, that was in the heart of a neighborhood called Inman Park, which is about a 10 minute walk from the brewery. And, you know, I got to know all the local establishments, restaurants, drinking places and everything and could walk to some really cool ones. And um, and then when we bought our house, I, I, I've absolutely fallen in love with this city. It's it's a wonderful place. By all accounts, uh, I have likewise not spent a great deal of time in Atlanta, but every time I've spent there has been, uh, you know, it's it's like a, a city like Toronto for me, for whatever reason. It occupies that space in my mind where I'm like, I'm aware that it's a city, but yeah, you know, whatever. Um, and then you go there and it's just like, man, I'm, I've been such a fool not to acknowledge that this city has its own identity and culture um, and, uh, and, and, and gets probably less respect from me, at least, than, than it should. You had talked about, uh, you, you said you were living in Temecula. I wanted to make another connection with you. There was a brewery down there um, whose name escapes me uh, that right when our uh, beer M43 was, was gaining in popularity, we decided we we're going to put it in cans. Uh, so we bought a three-head semi-automatic filler uh, from a brewery out in Temecula. Really? Yeah. And they talked, they were making like a, this probably isn't going to help because this is maybe 2016. But they were making, I think, like a grapefruit wheat beer was their big beer. Um, they knew you. They talked well. Anyway, they talked yeah. a lot about you. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who that might have been. Uh, was that Garage? I don't think so. No, no and I'm sorry uh, to bring it up and not know their name. But yeah, uh, it's all right. I, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I, I. One of the cool things I didn't like Temecula when we first moved there. We moved there because the schools were good. It's a lot. And, of um, it is hot. Uh, <laughs> but you know, my friend Andy Marshall started a brewery. Um, there called Black Market, and that was the first brewery after Vinny's Blind Pig had shut down, you know, years ago. And I became friends with Andy, and then, uh, you know, all along that west side of Temecula, breweries were popping up everywhere, and sure. it turned into a really cool thing. And I had a a, a good buddy, uh, uh, John Wrighty, who who he and I used to take Sundays and go out and pub crawl nice. and it was just a wonderful tradition that we had and i really miss it you know because he, he's a fun guy and we you know we'd visit all these breweries and you know they were all uh, not quite walking distance from each other but you know you, you didn't have to drive either and right. nice. you know and it was it was just really a, it was turning into a really cool beer city when i left and i became good friends with a lot of the brewers there 
So now to Atlanta, which to me at least has this kind of, it maybe it's probably just me putting this on the city, but it's it's this this uh, modern it's a modern city without question, uh, mm-hmm. but it also is kind of the entrance to this area of the country that is still wrapped in a little bit of mystique, and there's a southern. I mean, it's it's still a southern city, yeah. um, and so there's a lot of that uh, you know that 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 kind of southern gothic stuff happening there. Um, and a lot of sort of countercultural stuff is happening in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And you open New Realm, which is a professional brewery. Um, and I wonder, and what I mean when I say professional is it's professionally run, it's professionally put together, it's you know, the the the, the labels are all in place. You're you're not you, none of you are wondering independently or collectively what it is that you should be doing when you open up New Realm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh you're opening it up at a time when, and, and it is 2018 that you open? Yeah, into 2017 and early 2018. Okay. At a time when in Atlanta and everywhere around the country, this kind of uh, what, what I think of as a sort of a punk ethic had been growing over the last maybe decade or at least five or six years. And, and mm-hmm. beer fans are communicating differently than they were even a few years before with regard to, uh, you know, by use of these different apps like Untapped and yeah, these rating sites and whatever. Um, so I felt, uh, and again, I started brewing professionally in 2002 here in the States. Um, I felt like there was a real shift in almost everything about brewing um, and, and sort of a, 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 the, the consumer wanting to be innovative themselves and finding the smallest brewery they could find and, and yes. championing, you know, yes. this, this beer that may or may not, from an objective perspective, be that great. Um, because they found it first, right? Yeah. Uh, or because it had marshmallows in it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, for a long time, it took me a long time to, to, to accept that and kind of figure it out because it's not the kind of brewer I am. It's not the kind of brewing I like to do. Um, but, you know, this DIY ethic was, you know, became kind of expected. Yeah. And I wonder, uh, which was difficult for us to balance when we opened Old Nation in 2015, I wonder if that's, I wonder what your perspective on that is, or, or if I'm making any sense at all, I suppose. Yeah, no, my perspective aligns with yours. Um, I think we walked right into the middle of that transition uh, in Atlanta. Um, you know, Atlanta had Sweetwater and Creature Comforts was the the one that really kind of changed things in Georgia. And they're in Athens, uh, but their beer, you know, they make a wonderful IPA. It's the most popular IPA in Atlanta. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's called Tropicalia. Yep. And I drank a lot of it, you know, when we were starting up and uh, it's a wonderful beer, but they were always running out of it. Right. And right. so, you know, it was a big deal when when Hop City or some of the other local beer stores would get 10 cases of Tropicalia right. and they'd sell out in a day. And yep. it's like, how do we get on that? Well, we couldn't. We right. couldn't. And, and um, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, we did come in. And it looked like we were spending a lot of money, which is absolutely true. Um, You know, we didn't all live here, which was part of part of the issue. I think I I think people looked at us. You know, I heard the term carpetbaggers thrown around a little bit. And, um, you know, but Carrie lived here. Carrie had lived here for like 10, 10 to 15 years before before we started this. Also, Atlanta's Uh, full of people who weren't born there, man. It's mostly people. Right. You know, (laughs) Um, but, you know, it was it was something that it was an uphill battle for us a, a bit and and it still exists you know they we're not 
Um, I wouldn't consider us darlings of Atlanta craft brewing community, but I do know that the brewing community respects us and, um, you know, and enjoy our beers. And, and, you know, so that's, you know, where we're located, we're, we're in a very busy area with a lot of young people and a lot of foot traffic. And so, you know, we tend to get on the weekends, especially get people that just come in to party. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, the serious beer drinkers tend to come in, in the middle of the week. And, and, you know, so we've got this, this varying clientele and we've had to, we've had to, you know, make some adjustments in what we were brewing because, you know, people who are coming into our place, you know, only a handful wanted a, a 70 IBU IPA. Right. And, and, you know, one of our best selling beers in our restaurants is a Munich Dunkel, which I'm tremendously proud of. You know, it's like, this is so cool. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we, we didn't start off that way. We started off doing West Coast IPAs and double IPAs. And we did a, a a coffee porter and we did a Pilsner and, um, and people came into our place and, you know, and this was right when, you know, some of the smaller breweries were doing really these really wacky beers and hazy yeah. fruited beers and things yeah. like that. And which I had never brewed before or anything like that. And we didn't have that. We were we were kind of old school with our starting lineup. And that that hurt us. And we listened, you know, it's so, like, OK, <laughs> I want I want to say for what it's worth, we experienced the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so we opened up in 2015 and I was like, great, man, I finally get to make the beer I want to make. I'm going to make a Dunkel Weizenbach. I'm going to make a dry English stout. I'm going to make a killer pale ale with some awesome Michigan hops that I found. You know, and these are all beers that are brewed to a, a pretty decent standard. It's myself and Nate Rixey, who went to UC Davis as well. Okay. Um, we've both been brewing for about 20 years apiece. Um, we're also, you know, making a good beer is not what we're what we're yeah. questioning if we can do, right? And so uh, we put out all these beers, an alt beer in the package. We put out all these beers. And, uh, you know, slick packaging, five right away in all the chain stores because we already have those relationships. We got no problem, right? We're on easy street now. It absolutely sunk like a stone, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, so we had to figure out what to do. We ended up making New England IPA and putting it in 16-ounce cans, and hallelujah, it worked, right? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, our experience too. And and you know, our our Hazy Like a Fox is our New England IPA. It's our number one selling beer by far. Yeah. And I had never brewed one before. You know, Stone wasn't interested in them when they were first coming out. And, you know, Greg didn't didn't want us to brew one. And so sure. I never really pursued it because I wasn't sure whether it was a fad or whether it was going to stick around or not. <laughs> and you. then in the in the two and a half years I wasn't making beer, they they turned into something very real. And so Greg, Greg, uh, not Greg, uh, Carrie and Bob came to me and said, we need a New England IPA. And I said, really? Are you, are you sure? And but I had to learn how to brew them. Right. You know, they're so I'm fascinating, talking, man. They are. They are. They're <laughs> absolutely fascinating to brew. And there's so much different about brewing that style of beer yeah. than a West Coast IPA or a pale ale or something. And. I'll never forget the first day that we did a mid-fermentation dry hop on a pilot batch. And we have sensory every day in the lab. And I walked in there and I did a, a sniff test on that fermenter. And I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. It's working. It's the turning magic. into orange juice, man. <laughs> that used to be geranial. And yeah. Not- yeah. So, I, you know, it, 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 for me, even though that isn't the style that I was gravitating towards at the yeah. time, 
I enjoyed the process of making one. Me and too. the best thing that we did at New Realm was when Green Flash's brewery in Virginia Beach got foreclosed on and got put up for auction. And we ended up buying that brewery. Um, and we were able to shift a lot of our big volume brands up to Virginia beach and we still brew them in Atlanta, but at a very lower rate, you know, just for the restaurant basically. Yeah. And so we were able to turn Atlanta and this is where we are right now. Atlanta has become our innovation brewery. And with our volume growth is starting to turn into our overflow brewery from Virginia beach. So anytime they don't have the capacity to brew something we need, we'll look at brewing it in Atlanta which is wonderful because we're brewing more than we ever have um, in Atlanta, which is a, a great thing. But yeah, it's um, it was a long road, you know, and, and um, you know, in, 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 you know, brewers, and I've had this conversation a lot recently. And, I'm, and in fact, I'm writing a blog on this right now. But, you know, to your point, you mentioned this earlier. It used to be cool enough just to have a brewery, right? Yeah, and be and, good. And, and, make a good beer. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, if you didn't make good beer, you weren't going to last more than a few right. years, but people would still go. Mm -hmm. But um, now you've got to do you've got to do marketing and yeah. you've got to set yourself apart from from everybody else because there's so many breweries out there. Yep. And I think what we've been able to successfully do is, number one, we were the first brewery in the Atlanta area to have a hazy IPA as a flagship beer. Everybody Ooh. else was brewing them, but they were brewing one-offs and things like that. And, and this was like the one that was always available. It was consistent. Yep. It tasted the same batch to batch. Yep. Um, so we were the first ones in Atlanta to do that. And, and I think that really helped us. And then the other thing we did with our restaurants and the, and the clientele that was coming in is we, we were able to show our brewing chops, you know, right. and, and brew a lot of different styles. And, and I've been saying for a couple of years now, my goal is when anybody comes into new realm and, and they like beer, they're going to find something they like, right. you know, whether, right. whether they like Pilsners or, or light lagers or whether they like, you know, heartier IPAs or dark beers or things like that, they're always going to find something in those camps in our restaurants. And, and that has proven to be a very good thing for us. Well, and it, it seems to me like, um, and this is a very general, this is a very broad statement, so forgive me, but it seems to me like um, in a kind of changing craft beer market where there's a lot of competition and maybe in some corners, some flagging interest, um, the best thing you can do is be able to do anything, <laughs> as silly as that yeah. sounds, yeah. Um, but be able to accurately pull anything off. So as those times and tastes change, you are ready to adapt and respond. Um, and there's really, it doesn't seem like there's any other clear path and it doesn't really matter if there was because it seems like a pretty solid one regardless to me. Yeah. Um, but now we see uh, folks, and I mean, I think this is the brewer's oasis, right? This is something you, the mirage, you know what I mean? You see and it, maybe it never exists, but um, you know, this year is supposed to be right, the year of the lager. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I would so love for that to be the case. Um, but I've been through other years that were supposed to be the year of the lager and work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I wonder. It does seem to me like. Uh, folks, maybe maybe the pandemic sped this up a little bit, but it does seem like folks kind of retreated to um, flagship beers. So here in Michigan, of course, the primary flag flagship beer, as it should be, is two hearted. Yep. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, they experienced great sales. I think founders with uh, All Day IPA here in Michigan uh, did well as well. Um, and, and we, with our core beer, uh, M43 and its attendant brands did uh, really well too. Um, those are all IPAs, <laughs> but uh, yeah. we did see people go to, um, you know, go to more traditional beers and more than that, just kind of go to breweries that they trust. They know the beer is going to be consistent. They're picking yeah. it up in the store anyway, right? They can't just buy a pint and see if they like it. Um, and, 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 and so buying habits did seem to change. And I wonder yep. if that may be the thing that is an ultimate tipping point to go back to traditional beers, which can only correctly be brewed by someone who knows what he or she or, or they are doing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But maybe it's just my own little wet dream that I'm having here by myself. I, you know what? I think there's a lot of us that are hoping for the same. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, and this is something I, I pontificate a lot about, you know. so, <laughs> But, um, you know, there's room for everything. But, you know, the fact that, and, and especially we saw this in Virginia Beach, our German beers did very well in Virginia beach because there's a huge military presence yeah. in Virginia beach. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people who spent time stationed in Germany and got used to German beers and we're brewing authentic versions of those beers. Um, but you know, there's always going to be the hype beer. And I've been hearing that this is the year of the lager for, for several years, like you have, <laughs> you know, but I take comfort in some things. And, and one is I'm starting to hear people ask for a West coast IPA again. Um, our Pilsner is our most awarded beer. It's not, it's probably our third best seller, but it's our most awarded beer. We probably have more permanent tabs in Atlanta with our Pilsner than any of our other beers. Um, and, and so there's, there's hope, right? You know, there's hope to, <laughs> to get back to this stuff and not, and, and, and maybe not focus on all this wacky stuff that's really hard to make and really expensive. Um, you know, but there's always going to be that, right? I mean, I've, I've been in this business now for over 30 years and you always see these things come and go, um, you know, and, and, and that perspective led me to think that perhaps hazy IPAs weren't going to be what they've become right you know it's sure. like okay you know it's going to be like black ipa or it's going to be like white ipa or you know whatever and well, and sure. it's going to peak and drop and yep. it, it just kept going right yeah. and, and uh and and you know i'm i'm pretty pragmatic about that kind of stuff it's like yeah we need to be brewing these and we brew a lot of hazy ipas right now but you know um and we just came out with a hazy pale ale uh called haze dipper and we just you know, another beer that we have high hopes on that we just came out with is a is a wheat ale with uh, passion fruit and guava and blood orange in it. Oh, that'll do it. <laughs> and you know, it's 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 got a great name. It's called Tropic Dream, and, and there you go, perfect. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's actually you know it's been out for a few weeks now, and all indications are this is going to be a huge success for us. I hope so. I, um, I do too. You know, but I, I take, I, I like the fact that because we have the restaurants and we have creative brewers that I, I love to give the opportunity to come up with stuff that we can do things on a small scale and see if they work and, and get some feedback on them and just have some fun with that while yeah. we're cranking out a lot of this other beer that is what's making us money. So. It's, it's crucial. Uh, yeah. It's crucial. Um, well, you know, Mitch, there are about a thousand things I'd still like to, to chat about, but I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> um, you know, I did want to get to really briefly, and, uh, and I think we can do this pretty quickly. Um, 
the idea of we talked about New England IPA, we talked about all this stuff, things that I or you have thought, man, that should have taken and didn't in this new context where craft beer is really evolving quickly and, and, and changing, I'd, let's say over the last three or four years. Um, I can't believe that Brute IPA didn't make it in a context of people drinking seltzer. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Hundred percent. What the hell happened? Yeah, I think you know what. Honestly, what I think happened is the word "brute" scared yeah. people away, and people related that to aftershave, not brute champagne. <laughs> and um, and I think it's you know there are a couple of breweries around that are doing a brute IPA, and they don't call it brute IPA, and it, it I, does I very do well. For I don't. Them. Yep. <laughs> low carb IPA. It works. Yeah, and we've got a low carb IPA that we came out with that by all accounts is very good on a flavor standpoint, but our packaging was really, really wonky and we don't think the packaging worked for it. So it didn't really take off, but you know, we were, I was excited about brewed IPA because that was something different, you know, yeah. that I could get wrap my hands around. And um, we were the first brewers in Georgia to brew one. Uh, and then I think it was, uh, I don't, I don't remember. There was another brewery that released theirs a day before ours, but we had brewed it first and, and <laughs> we, we decided to let it really ferment out. Sure. But I was excited yeah. about that. And we did a lot of things with those enzymes. We did, uh, we were doing uh, fruited beers that had very little hop character and putting the enzyme in them so that they tasted like a wine yes. um, or a champagne, like a, you know, like a raspberry champagne kind of thing. Yeah. And we had a lot of fun with it. And it just, yeah, the word brute just didn't work for people. Um, I still think it's got some legs with the low carb idea. And that's yeah. where we went with it. We was like, Hey, you know, if we do this at 4% alcohol instead of six, we're going to have beer that's less than a hundred calories. Yep. Maybe we should, we should be thinking about that. And that's how, you know, our beer, which is called below IPA came about, you know, and it's a wonderful beer. I drank a lot of it, but it just didn't do well in distribution for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I think that was one of them. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with these cold IPAs that people are brewing. Yeah. Because we, we did one two and a half years ago and it was a wonderful beer. Uh, we did it as a collaboration with 21st Amendment with Sean O'Sullivan, and it was a good beer, and it did well for us. And I, you know, I we nobody in our company ever had any interest in doing another one, but now we're starting to see a lot of breweries in Atlanta do them and yeah. and having some success with them. So it's it's something that's top of mind for me. Um, you know, maybe we should do another one at some point. Well, it's interesting, and it's interesting how broad the the, the the sort of the label IPA has become so broad as to be almost oh, yeah. meaningless, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just means hoppy at this it point, right? just means right? hoppy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, Mitch, I, uh, man, I mean, again, I could I could talk to you for, for hours and hours, but I, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for spending this amount of time with me. And... Uh, you know, I've, 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 I've been a big fan of yours uh, for, for some you. time. I started with the Hop Tripper blog, and um, it's just been a, a real honor to talk to you. I, I appreciate it very much. Well, th thank you for having me. I, I've really enjoyed talking with you too, Travis. And you know what? If we got more to talk about, let's do it again sometime. It sounds great, man. I'd love to. I'd love All right. to. All right. Cool. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. I, so I got back to St. Louis and we sit in the meeting. I said, okay, guys, what are we going to do with the IPA? And they're like, yeah, we're probably not going to do anything with uh, it. To get different perspectives on work, on philosophy toward work, 
and on the brewing industry specifically. My passion yeah. is to make something that is as perfect as I can make it, no matter what it is. Right. Man, you're super mediocre. Stop being mediocre. You're built to be not mediocre. You kind of understand that medium molecular weight uh, right. proteins right. is the key. Yes, um, exactly. They weren't drinking beer to get out of their family and to get out of their life and get out of their just head. Part they, of it. it was part of it. Um, and I think that's what, you know, that there's a huge inf information uh, to me on, on drinking. And so Your first job as a brewer is to not give anyone a hangover they didn't earn.